This is the Trails Church Podcast. At the Trails Church, our mission is to glorify God by making disciples through the gospel in community and on mission. If you'd like more information about our church, visit our website, thetrails.org. Now, here's today's podcast. Open your Bible with me to Exodus 17. Charles Spurgeon was writing to a group of young pastors, and he encouraged them, let your sermons be full of Christ from beginning to end, crammed full of the gospel. Oh man, I love sermons like that, that exalt Jesus, that drip of the good news that Christ has died in the place of sinners, that uh, adjust my eyes where I can see Jesus more clearly. But what about sermons from the Old Testament? Far removed from the bright world of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. What about those passages that are challenging to make the connection from where you are in the Bible, say Exodus 17, and Christ? Well, Spurgeon went on to illustrate his point like this. He said, you remember the story of the old minister who heard a sermon by a young man. And when he was asked by the preacher what he thought of it, he was rather slow to answer. But at last he said, if I must tell you, I did not like it at all. There was no Christ in your sermon. No, answered the young man, because I did not see that Christ was in the text. Oh, said the old minister, but do you not know that from every little town and village and tiny hamlet in England... There's a road leading to London. Whenever I get a hold of a text, I say to myself, there is a road from here to Christ, and I mean to keep on his track until I get to him. Well, said the young man, but suppose you're preaching from a text that says nothing about Christ. Then I will go over hedge and ditch, but I will get to him. It has been my aim to preach Christ from the first 16 chapters of the book of Exodus. Honestly, I don't know if I've ever seen Christ more clearly. I don't know if I'll ever be the same. I pray I'm never the same after having together worked through this great book. Most of the roads from these first 16 chapters... The roads to Christ have been so clearly marked, like taking the interstate. Other passages may have required us to jump a hedge or two, but I pray that not one text or sermon, there's not been one that's not led us to see more of the glory and goodness of our Savior, finding Him more beautiful and believable. Like all true churches, we believe in the authority, inerrancy, and sufficiency of Scripture as the rule of our lives. And we want to grow in our understanding of how these 66 books with narrative and poetry, wisdom and prophecy, letters and gospels, all stitched together to tell one great story, the story of God's salvation through Christ. We believe Scripture is about Christ from beginning to end, or as Sally Lloyd-Jones puts it, that every story whispers his name. So, we want to keep our eyes fixed on Christ as we read the Bible, 
And we also want to keep our eyes fixed on the passage that is open in front of us. Because along the way, there are lessons that the Lord means to teach us from them. Over the last few weeks, we've been in this section of Exodus known as the wilderness wanderings. The Israelites experienced between chapters 15 and 18. Well, in the New Testament, when the Apostle Paul wants to warn Christians, warn Christians about serious damage that sin can cause in their lives, idolatry can cause in their lives, he points back to these very stories we've been in in order to warn them, to instruct them. He writes in 1 Corinthians 10, 6, Now these things took place as examples for us, warnings for us, so that we might not desire evil as they did. Now, Paul wants his audience to see Christ in these wilderness wanderings, but he also wants to hear, have them listen to these wilderness warnings. There are warnings in the wilderness for you and I to heed. Exodus 17, 1 through 7, though not much in size, is a massively important passage in the Bible. Let me remind you where we've been. So like a good shepherd, God has been leading his people through the wilderness, providing for them, protecting them, walking with them. He's been testing and teaching them with every step to depend and trust in him. Yet as they make their way further from the Red Sea, there's evidence mounting that their hearts are wandering further from the God who saved them. Still, the Lord, who is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, continues to show himself faithful and gracious to these knuckleheads in the wilderness. So once more, he will supernaturally provide for them. Ultimately, we will see Christ in this story. And I hoped even in the title of the sermon that would help us not to miss him. And the rock was Christ. We're also going to hear some very important warnings that we don't want to take lightly. Warnings we don't want to miss. They're so important. I've used them as the points in the outline of the sermon. So here are these three warnings. One, do not put God to a test. Verses one through three. Two, do not forget the mighty works of God. And three, do not harden your heart toward God. So we have our heading. Let me encourage you to stand to your feet as we read from the holy, inerrant, inspired word of God, though written long ago, will speak to us today. All the congregation of the people of Israel moved on from the wilderness of sin by stages according to the commandment of the Lord and camped at Rephidim. But there was no water for the people to drink. Therefore the people quarreled with Moses and said, Give us water to drink. Moses said to them, Why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? 
But the people thirsted there for water. And the people grumbled against Moses and said, Why did you bring us up out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? So Moses cried to the Lord, What shall I do with this people? They are almost ready to stone me. And the Lord said to Moses, Pass on before the people, taking with you some of the elders of Israel, and take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile, and go. Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb, and you shall strike the rock, and water shall come out of it, and the people will drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel. And he called the name of the place Massa and Meribah, because of the quarreling of the people of Israel. And because they tested the Lord by saying, Is the Lord among us or not? The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Amen. The first warning from our passage, do not put God to a test. We begin with another family moving day for the children of Israel as they leave the wilderness of sin. Remember, not the wilderness of sin, but the region of Sinai, sin being short for Sinai. They make their way to this place called Rephidim. The Lord had been leading his people like a shepherd from oasis to oasis through the desert where there never lacked. There was provision for their needs. He was feeding them daily with manna. From heaven. They arrive at Rephidim, which means resting place. But here there was no rest to be found because there was no water to be found. And in the words of Taylor Swift, if you think you've seen this film before, you would be right. Just a page or two back in the Bible, Israel arrived at Marah, and there was water, but it was bitter. Here at Rephidim, there is none. At Marah, the Lord made the bitter water sweet. Well, what will he do here? Let's not gloss over the real frustration, thirst, agony that thirst causes. And God saw it all. God was leading them to that thirst so that they would thirst for him. God led his chosen people to an unfamiliar place in order to teach them a familiar lesson. We've been watching the Israelites during this journey, and my, how their grumbling has grown. This is the fourth time Moses has mentioned the grumbling of God's people. It started with a few unhappy souls, and then it it was so contagious it spread through the camp, and now there is no stopping it. Notice how their grumbling has turned, in verse 2, to quarreling. Now, the Hebrew word for quarrel is a legal term, riv. This is where a lot of these legal terms in Hebrew life come from. This word quarrel means to enter into a legal controversy with someone, make a charge against them, to take that case to court. And who is the person they are accusing? God. They are accusing God. They want justice for what he has done to them. The people are not asking 
God for water. They are not praying for it. They are demanding provision. This is more than just complaining. So finally, we're able to see here in this text what's really going on in the hearts of the children of God. The people are testing the Lord. Now that word test is not new to us. We've seen it twice. Chapter 15, verse 25. Chapter 16, verse 4 and 5. As Israelites wonder. But notice how differently it's used here. In the past, God was the one testing his people. Not to try to get them, but to teach them. But here they turn the tables on God. And it's they who will test him. And this is no small thing. Alec Mateer explains exactly what they're doing. Testing God involves putting Him on probation. Withholding trust, pending evidence. For the Israelites, it meant doubting whether He who had provided sufficient in the past was sufficient still. The Israelites have put God on probation. The one who fed them that very morning with bread from the sky. They're withholding their trust, pending evidence. They erupt in anger. Why did you bring us here? Why did you take us out of Egypt to kill us and our kids and all of our livestock? At first they just murmured to Moses, They just grumbled, and then that grew, and they started romanticizing life before God had saved them. Do you remember that? Looking back at Egypt, like, maybe it was better there before we were saved. And through these distorted glasses, they look at their past. They say, maybe it was all just meat and bread when we were there. But we know the story. We heard their groaning back in Exodus 2. God, save us from these miserable conditions. And now they test the Lord. In their thirst and in their unbelief, they accuse God of murder. So perhaps you and I, not so different from the Israelites, have put God on probation from time to time. Maybe in the fear of the unknown, You can't see the way forward. You've withheld your trust from him. When sickness strikes, when war breaks out, when your marriage is crumbling, and in those moments, the question is, will we trust the good and sovereign care of our God or will we withhold our trust pending evidence? So this this passage is a warning to us. Let's not be like the Israelites who doubted that God who proved sufficient in the past will not be sufficient still or into the future. That's the first great warning. Do not put God to the test. The next warning is do not forget The mighty works of God. These three verses are remarkable. 
in the middle of this tension, Moses does what God has taught him to do. He calls upon the Lord. The people grumble. Moses groans for help. And the Lord heard Moses. The Lord saw the condition that he was in. The Lord knew what was at hand. And the Lord remembered his covenant. God told Moses exactly what to do. He gives him the recipe for what to do now. He was to gather the elders. He was to go, first and foremost, not just sit there. But go, gather the elders of Israel so there's witnesses in this court of public opinion. God says, hey, grab the staff. Remember the staff back from uh, chapter 3 that God had given him? Grab that, and I want you to go before this rock at Horeb. This is around Sinai, which we will see them meet at another rock. And God would stand before him on the rock. What does that mean? What does it look like for the unseen God to stand on a rock? We don't know. Perhaps it's the, the pillar, which is the presence of God among his people. Maybe it moved to where this rock was. Perhaps there was some kind of display of the presence of God there. We're not told all those details. What we are told is that Moses is supposed to strike this rock where God was standing. And God said that water would flow from a rock. Now, if you'd never heard this story before, your mind would, what? You've never seen this. I've never seen this. Water from a rock? And this is a true story. Moses demonstrates such humility and trust in the Lord. He spills a lot of ink telling us the details of the recipe, the instructions that God had told him to do, from the witnesses to the rod to the position where God would be. And notice all he writes of the miracle itself. Four little words. And Moses did so. All the stuff that God told him to do, Moses did it and God did it. As if to say, well, of course everything I told you the Lord said would come to pass did. Have you guys been reading? And it did. It did come to pass. The very rod that struck the Nile River to deprive Egypt of water now becomes the means to provide water for God's people. So like the parting of the Red Sea and how the water at Mara turned from bitter to sweet and how manna fell from the sky. Scholars have tried to explain how this could happen scientifically. Geologists, we even have one in our church. Geologists tell us that there are rocks in the Middle East that are porous and that can store a lot of water. It's true. And, and yes, the rock could have just been on the ground plugging up a, a terrific geyser that would flow so massively it would, it would drench you know, a million people and quench their thirst. But the details of the rock formation are not the concern of Moses. His concern is to tell us how God provided for his grumbling people out of grace. And the Holy Spirit uses what Moses wrote and points us to Christ. I'll show you how. 
So I spend time in um, um, exegetical commentaries, expositional commentaries every week as I'm thinking about a text and, and wanting to understand it myself that I'll be preaching the coming Sunday. But the best commentary is when Scripture itself helps us interpret Scripture. So I want you to turn in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. I referenced this earlier, but I didn't tell you everything. It's here that the Apostle Paul writes a God-breathed commentary on Exodus 17, 1 through 7, helping us interpret this passage and also teaching us how to read the Bible with Christ at its center. So he writes there, 1 Corinthians 10, 1 to 4. For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea and all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them And the rock was Christ. They drank from the spiritual rock, and the rock was Christ. What? What? Back here in Exodus 17, like long before the incarnation? Yes, remember, Jesus' life didn't begin at his physical birth. He's the begotten of the Father from eternity past to eternity future. He has no birthday. He's always been. He always will be. What in the world is Paul saying here? Well, what Paul means is that this rock was more than a rock. It was a spiritual type. That word type is very important. Like we, we, we think of uh, typology, the study of types, when we sing like Christ the true and better Adam. We're looking at these Old Testament figures, seeing their role in redemptive history, and we're seeing how they are also shadows of what would be fulfilled in Christ. And so this rock was a type, a foreshadowed picture of Christ, a pre-incarnate appearance of Christ. We know the word theophany, we've learned that. It means the invisible God made visible, like at the burning bush, God showed himself. He showed his glory to Moses through this fire. Well, scholars like to think of this as a Christophany, so a pre-incarnate appearance of Christ, of the second person of the Trinity. What Paul is pointing to is the spiritual reality that Christ was with his people in Exodus 17. One of my heroes from Baptist history is a guy called John Gill, and I'd like to read you what old Mr. Gill said about this passage. He said, The water that flowed from this rock was typical of the grace of Christ and the blessings of it which flow from him in great abundance to the refreshment and comfort of his people and to be had freely and of the blood of Christ which flowed from him when stricken and smitten. And the rock being smitten with the rod of Moses 
typified, pointed to Christ being smitten by the rod of the law in the hand of justice for the transgressions of his people. And how that through his saving, being made sin and a curse for them, whereby the law and justice of God are satisfied. And the the blessings of grace flow freely to them and follow them all the days of their lives as the waters of the rock followed the Israelites through the wilderness. There is Christ in the Old Testament. Seen in this old stone, the rock of ages shown to us right here. Why? So that we would not forget the mighty works of God. Because what the Israelites looked forward to, you and I have known in full in Jesus. (laughs) Do not forget the mighty works of God in Christ. Christ who was struck for us. Satisfying the wrath of God so that you and I could be fully accepted by him. That is the good news of the gospel. That God did for you in Christ what you could never do for yourself. Saved you from first to last. So do not forget the mighty works of God in Christ. The final warning. This is where all of this leads to. Verse 7. Do not harden your heart toward the Lord. I'd like to begin with this indicting question. We find in the final words of our text, is the Lord among us or not? And part of my heart breaks in reading those words. The God who showed his power through the ten plagues of Egypt and Toward these people who had walked miraculously on dry ground with walls of water shoved back on either side. Who'd been supernaturally replenished by filtered water back at Mara. And been fed by heavenly manna. All the while, and don't forget this, while every step of their journey, the attending presence of God is with them in this cloud of fire. By day and by night, they can see it. Never once without being in sight of the nearness of their God. And they have the audacity to look back at him and say, is the Lord among us or not? Their grumbling hunger would not be satisfied by all these mighty acts of God's hand. And so they just rifle this question through the air. And the scene comes to an end. After this miraculous moment that Moses and the Israelites experienced, he renames this place, giving it not one name, but two. First and last name, perhaps. Massa means testing, because this is the place it became clear that the Israelites would be testing the Lord. Meribah means quarreling. And I think the reason is because on the first leg of this trip, on the way to Sinai, 
This is where their grumbling reaches its climax. If John Bunyan had named these places, he might have called them Testing Town and Quarrelsville. And he'd be telling us, you don't want to go there. But this is where they were. So why would Moses, in light of what God did at this place, why would Moses use these two negative names to describe it? Why not call it water flowed from the rock? That sounds like a great place to go. No. Testing town, Quarrelsville. Why do that? To warn the people of God. To warn you and me of what is at work in us. And so that they would be a people who would look back on this passage we're looking at and be warned and reminded from generation to generation that we too have hearts that are prone to wander, prone to leave the God we love. I want you to turn now to Psalm 95. I realize we're jumping around. Normally I'm just a sticker. I just stay in one spot. But for us to see this passage, we've got to move around a little bit. Because here, it pops up again. In our call to worship this morning, we read the first few verses of Psalm 95. And it is a wonderful, warm invitation to come and sing. Come and worship the Lord with joy and praise and song. It is wonderful. But it is also a warning. So we'll we'll start reading now where we left off in the call to worship. Psalm 95, beginning in verse 7. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as at Meribah, as on the day at Massa in the wilderness, when your fathers put me to the test and put me to the proof, though they had seen my work. For 40 years, I loathed that generation and said, they are a people who go astray in their heart, and they have not known my ways. Therefore, I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. As David sings, he is aware of the human heart condition to grow cold toward the Lord. If you know his biography, you know that to be true. He knew how apt our hearts were to grow hard And he also saw it in his people. Like Paul, he's doing the same thing. He wants to shepherd the people. And so he points them back to Exodus 17 as a warning to them. Paul does the same thing, showing Christ from them. Don't do it. Don't harden your heart toward the Lord. So the question each of us must ask This morning, with our eyes fixed on Christ and our Bibles open in front of us, is a question of heart evaluation. How is my heart? Is my heart full of love and faith toward God? Or has my affection for Him grown cold? What's true of you? There is gospel news in that word today today 
today. Don't harden your heart. You can change what you've been. You don't have to remain the same. Why? Because, Christian, the power of Christ that flowed from this rock and and nourished the people flows to you through the Spirit of God. And if you're in Christ, He's given you a new heart full of life in Jesus, love for God that wasn't there before. So today, ask Him if your heart has grown hard toward the Lord because of a situation in your life or because you have neglected pursuing Christ. Today, don't harden your heart. Ask him to change it. And if, if, you, um, if you know your heart is still dead in sin, and you know there's no love for God in your heart, the Bible says that's how we were all born, enemies of God from birth. But this room is full of people who God has changed our hearts. Matter of fact, the, the promise of God is that he would take a heart of stone and make it like a heart of flesh. And take the hardest of heart and make it soft before him. How does that happen? You say, I hear you saying, today don't harden my heart. How do I do that? You can't do it. But you can call on the one who can. Today, today, don't harden your heart. You may not have tomorrow. Today is the day of salvation. Call upon the Lord. Call upon Christ. He is the rock. And let us pray. Father, thank you for your word that shines into our blindness such a brilliant light. Thank you for your word that speaks into our deafness such a clear promise, such a clear warning. We thank you for your word It works through our hearts. It humbles us. It instructs us. It saves us. Let the seeds that were planted here through this time, let them bear fruit, God. For your glory and for our joy, we ask these things. In Christ's name. Thanks for listening to this podcast from The Trails Church. We hope you have been encouraged, equipped, and edified by time spent together in God's Word. And again, if you'd like to find out more about The Trails Church, visit our website, thetrails.org.